You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Okay, hello. My name is Rory Hyde. I'm Associate Professor in Architecture at the University of Melbourne, and you are listening to the M Pavilion Digital Program, where I'm joined by the artist and feral economist, Kate Rich, to talk about her practice, which spans between art, logistics, communities of knowledge, infrastructures, experimentation, networks of exchange. Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge that we're hosting this event from the lands of the Bunurong, Bun Wurong, and Wurundjeri Woi Wurong peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands on which you all listen today. We pay our respects to elders past and present and celebrate the diversity of Aboriginal peoples and their ongoing cultures and connections to the land and waters of Victoria and across Australia. Um, good morning, Kate. Uh, and where are you speaking to us from? Hi, um, I'm speaking from Lutruwita, Tasmania, and this is the unceded lands of the Muwanina people. Nice to speak to you. Welcome. Um, I wanted to start by asking how it all began for you. How did you become a feral economist? <laughs> um, well, it started very practically, actually. I started out as a trader, a grocery trader, and this was back in the early 2000s when I started the feral trade business and that is began with trading coffee and extended to a whole lot of other grocery products. Your big project, Feral Trade, running for now over a decade um, and described as a public experiment in trading goods through active social networks. Just as we were joining the call, I was chatting to Tom, the producer, and I tried to explain it uh, and he asked um, does it work? And I thought that was such a great question <laughs> because it really depends on what you mean by work. So perhaps you could tell us a bit about Feral Trade and does it work? So I started Feral Trade in 2003. At the time, it was it was actually just very practical um, piece of activity rather than designed as a project in any way. And at the time, um, I was I'm normally based in Bristol in the UK. And I was working as the um, bar manager at an all-volunteer-run cinema, music and art space called the Cube Cinema. And I wanted a reliable source of coffee for the bar. And um, I was looking at the fair trade possibilities. And I, I got a little alarmed by the way that this kind of product presented itself in that you look at the bag and you see a picture of the farmer holding up a, the product and a kind of testimonial saying that he uses the money for his children's education. And there were a lot of things in that image that triggered alarm bells for me um, that I could see the farmer and he couldn't see me. 
Um, and also this really strange kind of moralising um, judgment call that because he uses the money for his children's education, this would be a worthy kind of coffee spent that brings in all of these questions on um, the farmer has no way of judging me on where I earn my money from, for example. So there was a whole lot of asymmetries and inequalities in something that was labelling itself fair or equal. And I was curious to know if I could, you know, I was thinking like, well, what, what does work in trade? And, you know, go to the local farmer's market, buy eggs from the egg lady, and um, I don't ask her if she uses the money for her children's education. And we have a chat about, you know, the eggs and the weather and whether the hens are laying or whatever else is going on in the world. And I was curious to see, could I replicate that type of relationship with something that is a stretch, an international commodity such as coffee that can't be sourced locally in southwest England? And having come through the previous decade of the massive change brought about by media, tech and communications and the really the way things like protocols like email really changed relationships and what, what it was possible to do. Having sort of lived through that, I was wondering could I um, use my computer-based, computer-formed social networks, email at the time, um, to transport relationships and things of value that were more substantial than, you know, text or cat JPEGs, whatever people were sending around. <laughs> so that was the basis of the project, basically. Um, can I use my extended social networks over these digital spaces to source and distribute an international commodity such as coffee? And um, so I did. Through a friend of a friend of a friend, I made contact with farmers in um, El Salvador at the time. I'm now working with a farmer in Mexico, another friend of a friend of a friend. So all of my suppliers, and I, I now deal other goods as well, so olive oil from Spain, for example, um, all of my suppliers and all of my customers are located through these types of networks. And most but not all of the um, transport happens along the, it happens in the same way. So I do do the larger imports of products such as coffee with commercial shipping. But once it gets to me, all of the onward distribution is done in my and other people's bags. So using these informal, ad hoc, strong and flexible relations to run a freight system and a commodity business. And because, so it started very casually and, you know, oh, let's get a shipment of coffee for the cube. And then other people wanted to buy it and things were getting more complicated. And I was, you know, I sort of had these kind of notes on backs of paper bags and couldn't keep track of anything. So I realised I need some inventory software to take care of it. And I very, very naively was looking around online for, you know, is, is, is there some kind of database spreadsheet type thing that I could use? And that brought home to me that all of the things that I was interested in in these transport relationships, such as who carried it and what were they feeling like that day and what did they have anything to say and what did the, what ports did the product pass through and what was spent on every stage of the journey? What, what are the taxes involved and did you have to pay, pay anyone off? 
And, you know, what, what, what's the news that you gleaned from the, from the freight agent? What was the gossip that day? None of the commercial software, of course, has fields to incorporate that kind of rich information about the traveling product that really fleshes out its biography. So I had to build my own um, and reluctantly learnt to code. And as a media artist, I actually was really motivated to develop this grocery business to get away from screens. Um, and very ironically, it led me back to the screen and, you know, months of um, typing code. But what, it, what, I've, what that's produced is the Feral Trade Career Database, and that's online, and it is both the project kind of front end for the public, but it's also my inventory system that tracks every shipment down to the single bag of coffee transported across town. And all of the invoices or invoicing is in there and all of the anecdotal information that happens to every voyage is also recorded there. And to answer your question, it's it also provides the kind of proof of work with, um, I can't remember how many thousand shipments to date, um, only a handful of which have failed, all for really charismatic reasons and shipping disasters often produce the best stories. So as a ad hoc, not-in-time delivery service that is able to ship a couple of bags of coffee from my flat in Bristol to a tea farmer in Fujian province. Um, I bought some tea from them at one point and they actually requested payment in coffee, which was a real challenge to get both of those forms of transport going through people who were travelling on existing journeys, handing things over to each other at waypoints or depots, many of which were arts institutions that kindly provided, you know, short-term storage space. So these feats or kind of stunts of international shipping are completely possible just through the vernacular activities that people are doing anyway. So for me, it's a real proof of concept that these processes that have been ultra-professionalised and commercialised and really taken out of our hands are things that can be manually and socially recreated within social networks. Mm. I have um, contributed a couple of um, handovers when I was in London um, and certainly I've, I had some bottles of olive oil on my desk for a couple of months, I remember, um, and it, even those there, you know, not in transit, acted as this amazing kind of conversation starter where people would say, well, what's the oil for? And I would say, well, it's this feral trade thing and then they would go and look it up. Um, and then I would, of course, meet the person coming to collect it and we'd do a selfie. So, I mean, it's exactly as you described, this wonderful um, chance encounters between uh, these uh, various informal couriers. Is that the sort of, um, I guess, the substance of the project, These uh, the creation of those encounters? Yeah, definitely. It's a business whose output is the encounters and the product being shipped is is a pretext for causing those interactions and being that conversation starter. Mm. At the same time, they're viable products, they're very good, and they're affordable. 
So it really, you know, all all good all good things, all good design doubles up. It's always, you know, if if you've got both dimensions running at once, then it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So it is both a product and a pretext, and it is both business and an art project, and it gains a dimension from being both at the same time. It's not reducible to one of those domains or the other. And I wanted to ask you about this word feral and what that means or what um, dimension that brings to the project. So feral, interestingly, it just started as a, when I first used it, it was really just a kind of um, cheap joke at the expense of fair and free trade because, <laughs> you know, as as mentioned, I thought that fair was, you know, taking on a lot of responsibility for um, a mm. very complex set of relationships that has a lot of inequalities and difficulties in it that need facing and you really erase that when you just chuck it you know sort of wallpaper over it with the word fair um and free trade obviously in the same way um evokes all of this you know who, who could be against fair or free for example as a as a concept um i'm against freedom or fairness but each of those ones makes pretty extravagant truth claims that cover up all of the complexity and difficulty in these arrangements. So I was staking, I was it's like a triangulation, you know, fair, free, feral. So it was a pun, um, play on words. But also having set that idea up and it really stuck, I realised that um, feral is a word that is, you know, only native English speakers tend to know and particularly Australians. So it's got so much more resonance in an Australian context. And I had to do a lot of explaining. If I was talking about the project to people who, um, for whom English was a second language, they would always have to give a definition. And so I came up with the kind of my shortest version of it, that it's willfully wild like a pigeon as opposed to romantically wild like a wolf. And <laughs> what that tries to get at is it's not trying to reestablish some kind of mythical idea of a folkloric Silk Road romantic peasant trader, which itself is also covering up a lot of complexity. But it's an active intervention between worlds. And I really took the um, character of the urban feral pigeon as an icon, that it's familiar to everyone, so people can associate, anyone who's lived in a city knows about the feral pigeon. And it's got such a bad reputation because it lives amongst us and eats our food and does what we do and is not sort of self-effacing or apologetic or cute or um, romantic. It's noisy and opportunistic and cheerful and gets on with stuff. So I found that a really relatable character that of this process that was doing also what the feral pigeon does is it's constantly transgressing boundaries so to carry, you know, to have your suitcase, your carry-on luggage packed only with bags of coffee, it's, there's nothing illegal about it, but it takes a bit of explaining at the airport. And using things like um, the curatorial desks, office desks of people such as yourself as my olive oil depot, these are all these little transgressions that are, um, are consensual and polite, but um, Push, pushing these boundaries. So the feral has that aspect 
And also what it really does is gets away from this thing that I find really problematic in the way that food trade is. There's a lot more thinking and thoughtfulness in food trade than there was when I started out, for example. But when you look at the way people present their product, it's all good. It's like the farmers using these amazing methods and the uh, payments are exemplary and the packaging is amazing and the taste's incredible. And so, wait a minute, where, where are the problems and why are we pretending that one category of thing that could somehow be pure and rescue itself from the, um, can I think of a kind word for it? We'll just say, let's say, from the disaster of capitalist economic systems that we would sort of somehow pluck out these products and purify purify them and then be okay to consume them. So I wanted a mm. form of commodity that just strived for um, better ways of doing things but allowed all the problematics to be there as well. And so feral is a really clear way that I'm word to say I'm not saying that this is necessarily good. I'm not saying that it's solving anything or it's got moral superiority. It really keeps outside because, you know, ferals are often obviously also a term for, um, you know, uh, nature gone bad, nature gone gone making trouble, feral cats eating our native birds, that kind of thing. And in, in Tasmania, um, where I currently am, we actually have feral kookaburras because they were imported from the mainland. Um, they're not supposed to be here and they're, you know, causing problems. So that feral is this category that is contested and um, it's something a bit out of place. It's not, it certainly doesn't carry with it this kind of virtue model that I really wanted to interrogate. Why, why is that so dominant? I, I read an interview you did a while back, which was uh, for Wired, and you talk about the weight of the things being careered, uh, that you have to put your body into it. And there also seems to be a part of this that's kind of reconnecting us to the physicality of stuff that we would otherwise order and magically appear on our doorstep. And But, the, you know, we need to actually do the lifting. Could you talk about the weight of your things and the physicality and how that pl plays a role in in the project it's really part of it and that was that original desire to experiment with you know can these email form social networks carry something more substantial than cat jpegs and at the time that i i sort of set this up i actually thought it would likely most likely fail that can I actually ask someone to put something in their bag and get it safely, something with some value, and get it safely from A to B? And I thought that structure of participation was a big ask. Extraordinarily, what's happened through, again, this kind of proof of concept that the website delivers of all of the deliveries that have been actually made is that it's much easier to ask someone to carry something than um, than for them to send in just a really small, quick report of their journey afterwards. That's like pulling teeth to get people to um yeah. to send to send the description of of what happened to them. So often I just sort of recreate that myself from um you know from email conversations that I've communications I've had with them. But people are extraordinarily willing to carry the things, and so there's an element of adventure and an element of having a bit of a mission 
And the way that that tacks itself onto what is actually even in the past and now even more so extraordinarily dreary and depressing, which is all kinds of commuting. And the system that we submit ourselves to in the airport is the icon of how a kind of very entitled Western citizen, that's the closest that you constantly get to being incarcerated, this, you know, put your belt on the um, conveyor belt thing, doesn't happen to most people very often. Um, or it's, you know, it's it's really confined to a certain class of um of citizen or non-citizen and that's that's our closest interface with it so these these, and we submit to these processes to get somewhere but they're actually extremely extremely oppressive uh situations so to have this kind of little little mission on board which is your your small payload of um feral trade goods that you might need to make a declaration about did you pack this bag yourself well you know i did in fact adds an element of adventure and a sense of being part of a larger system, I think, is something that appeals to people. And what it's really countering, as you mentioned, is this just extraordinary teleporting of things. Again, often these things that are made, you know, through fair labour and with these so seemingly exemplary practices, and then they just turn up at your home or in the shop. And the erasure of the whole realm of production and the handcrafting that goes on in the delivery process. So you have this particularly in this sort of realm of artisanal products that they would somehow appear and that the shipping would be something that you could really describe in two words or reduce to the carbon footprint kind of equation of complete statistical abstraction, mathematical abstraction. That, But actually, when you think about what happens in every delivery, it involves people and vehicles and weather and weight and wastage and problems and um, large-scale infrastructure, small-scale infrastructure, constantly transferring between these. So really to turn equal attention to all elements of the supply chain and not fetishise the two ends of it, the producer and the customer, which are generally what where all the attention goes in these processes. So it's almost about, or part of it is almost about um, making us like conscious of our privilege that, you know, all of these invisible people who support that infrastructure and revealing those, bringing those people to the surface or replacing them with people who are um, operating with different motives or aren't coerced in that way. Is, is that the sort of critique or awareness that is within the project as well? I guess so. I would probably take it in a slightly different direction, which is to what it what I think it does is it, it brings to acknowledgement all of these practices that we ourselves are also doing all the time that we mm-hmm. erase. So there's some statistic that I've never been able to find the source of, unfortunately, which is that a very high percentage of all transportation uh, goes on between people dropping stuff off for each other. They're like, oh, can you take that to so-and-so? It's not really about privilege in my mind, 
but that we separate ourselves from these practices and we actually are continuous with them. So it's rather than just turn attention to shipping uh, employees, transport employees, it's actually roping ourselves into that system so that we do a lot of the transportation ourselves. And so creating creating continuity between an understanding that these things are a continuity, not that we as the consumer are cut off and protected in our own little shell. It's actually trying to refuse the idea, the, the concept of privilege and so that we need to consider our own um, embodiment in the world. We aren't just these kind of like um, point and click, you know, we're not like a credit card on on legs. Um, we're actually part part of these processes. So to engage in carrying the coffee, for example, you're um, it is very physical experience. The smell of it, you know, your suitcase smells of something fantastic. And when you need to hand over, you need to kind of factor it in. Maybe you need to take something else out of your bag um, because it's heavy or you alter your route to, um, you know, I used to travel really light, for example, and now I'm always hauling huge amounts of things around. So it's <laughs> how it's certainly how I, um, I need to kind of design what I do. So it's implicating um, ourselves in those systems, which is to me is much more interesting than projecting um, an understanding on others. Uh, I, I wanted to ask about the technology aspect to it. Um, and you mentioned already how you've learned to code, you've um, created this new database system which captures all this other information that otherwise wouldn't. So, but that this project and that work predates what's become known now as the sharing economy, this um, idea that's really invented in the US in, by these um, tech companies that we can formalise the leftover time and resources and share them through these services. As somebody who's been doing this longer than that idea has been kind of weaponized, I, I wanted to ask how you feel about this movement being co-opted in that way. I love that idea of weaponized sharing. It's a good one. <laughs> so I started Feral Trade in 2003, and when you look back, I actually started six months before Facebook. So I always talk about using my social net, my extended social networks to transport goods, and that they're social networks, and it's not social networking. The difference is a lot of the difference is really about scale. And so social, network, social networking is designed along kind of algorithmic value vectors that assumes that things can scale up infinitely and that they gain value by doing that. And feral trade, on the contrary, deals with actual social networks, which, as we all know, don't scale infinitely. And um, there's this thing in in sociology, I think, called Dunbar's number, which which sort of people in general only ha have about 150 close contacts and also 150 people is about the size that an organisation or a village can operate at and that's been seen across cultures. So the 
size of the sterile trade network hasn't changed over time. It's just people come and go and products come and go and things move around. But it it doesn't infinitely scale because that's not what humans do. And scale is this the sort of ultimate um, icon of success in business. But when you apply the idea of scale to something like the human body, um, if something grows infinitely, it's cancer and it's not desirable at all. So it really questions um, and challenges the, the automatic desirability of scale in these systems. A real social network with all of its kind of difficulties again and the stop and start and the um, irregularity of human behaviour. It's not trying to systemize something. It's actually trying to unsystemize something. Fantastic. I love that idea of sort of reclaiming these things which have been um, co-opted and bringing the, putting the sort of people, the humans, back into it. Um, and I wanted to then look at your more recent project, which is, is, I guess, an extension of all of this thinking, which is the Feral MBA um, which you've been running while you've been here in Australia, as I understand. And the, from your website, the mission to delve into the alien and protected realm of business and economy with a wild curriculum of ideas, practices, resources and experiments. I wanted to ask if I were a student of your MBA program, what would I learn? Because um, it doesn't seem to be just about making money. Very true. So <laughs> Feral MBA, um, that is thinking that I've been doing for the last couple of years. And that really came out of having run Feral Trade for a long time. Sort of when I started that project, one of my first excitements was I'm going to meet all the other trade artists and go to the big trade art events. And very soon it was like, well, where are they? Like, who else is doing art in this space? And I found it quite hard to find. There were a lot of people doing art about business, but not art with it, in it. And then over time, I did start meeting all of these people in and not in art who were thinking really creatively and experimentally about what business could be and questioning a lot of its assumptions in quite different ways. And through that and through my own sort of, you know, coming to inhabit the role of a trader and really, you know, it's close to 20 years now, feeling that I I know certain things from that process just through doing, I was very interested in opening these questions with others. And I also was very aware of, um, from people around me, that artists do business badly um, they tend to stream themselves out of any particular understanding of it, um, of business or economics. And I was interested in economics too, but what I realised from some study is that economics leads you back into abstractions in the main, and business is something that's really tangible. We all do it. We're all um, a unit of livelihood in some way. We all interact with them all the time going to the shop, for example. Um, And business is something that reveals itself in a wildly varied array of shapes and styles, not all of which receive equal attention. So I was really interested in engaging with artists with the problems of business both for their own kind of around their own livelihoods but also this really this question of what can artists do for business what can the kind of thinking um, that 
artists are well trained in around um, playing with form and interrogating ideas and doing experiments. How could that be um, engaged to work towards some of the larger, you know, wider problems with business as usual, which are becoming more and more blatant against the background of a burning planet? So that's the reasoning behind the Feral MBA. And so I'd done some of the thinking and then I, I came here to Tasmania and did a pilot program for that project a year ago, year and a half ago. So what I can tell you, I'm still, I'm still really thinking about it. What I can tell you is more, maybe less what the student or participant would learn, but what I'm learning from organising it. And one of the things that's clearest to me from that process is that what is needed is not so much yet another set of models and tools and solutions, um, but what we're engaging with is undoing an extremely powerful ideology that we've all been stewing in, soaking in for our whole lives, that is that economics and business operate in one certain way that is the mainstream, competitive, rationally self-interested economics that isn't even named as such most of the time, but forms this kind of justification, oh, the hip pocket argument, you know, the bottom line, what business wants as if there was a single entity that is called mm. business that could be spoken for. So, and then, of course, what we think our parents expect of us to be successful. So all of these layers <laughs> of you know, like ideology and then social expectations and self-confidence and not knowing the difference between a lot of these very nuanced things are the space that the Feral MBA engages with to, and what it does is it kind of sets a stage, sets a quite a theatrical stage that is um, a place where we could gather to start undoing some of these assumptions and then run wild experiments with how business could be otherwise in the super exciting and dangerous um, space of our own actual business and economy. So it's it's really about creating a really kind of protected space in which even that thinking of how could I experiment with my own livelihood could be done because it's obviously mm. a, um, a really challenging, um, delicate prospect. Scary prospects, I imagine, for a lot of people. Uh, um, it was super interesting reading your report from last year on, the, I guess, the pilot program. And you mentioned some of the questions that your participants brought with them and that they were asking, such as um, finding ways to articulate value beyond the financial, uh, feeling uncomfortable, charging for things, um, or ditching the day job. And I, I realised that these feel like some of the questions that many of us are asking uh, almost as a consequence of the pandemic, which has thrown our business as usual, our relationship to the economy all up in the air. So I was wondering whether that is a, a consequence of the project. Does it help us to think about this new world that we're perhaps entering into now? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that so the that pilot that those comments came from, that was run in February 2019 in Hobart. And 
I think that, you know, I, I did a lot of um, note-taking and I think the word pandemic came up once. Mm. And on people's minds were actually the catastrophic bushfires of the summer that was, you know, um, coming to an end. And then one day after the program finished, there was the first case of COVID reported in Tasmania. And within a week, we were all plunged into completely different immediate circumstances with, you know, certainly half of people's um, work being cancelled. But the questions that came up for people in that process were extraordinarily prophetic. And one of the things that the Feral MBA does is create this space where it's not about me teaching anything. I don't really know much. It's about creating a space. You know, I don't have the answers either. Um, it's about creating a space where we can start talking about these questions together and bringing in our own knowledge from our own experiences of being businesses or just being in the world and starting to build a knowledge base about business from that and even having that um, opportunity to talk to each other about these things, which are really, these things are at our throats, these questions. So they're generally quite high, and there's a bit of a taboo in sort of English-speaking culture anyway of bringing these things up in public. So to be able to have a space to start talking about these questions um, brought out all of these fundamental issues that I think are common to very many people. And as you say, the pandemic is amplified, but they were always there. As questioning about business as usual, people sort of, there's a lot of dating that back to the financial crisis of 2008, but these questions were already there. These things are fundamental um, problems built into that system that given the right situation, these things will come to the surface. So what I'm also learning is that the time for this, that the, the, these these sort of forces, particularly the recent experience of the pandemic, have brought these questions to the surface, but they're they're um they're systemic. Mm-hmm. And it seems that the thread that links these two projects and all of your work actually is almost the creation of, as you've just explained, the forum for the exploration of those questions, which are otherwise hidden beneath the surface of, I don't know, uh, polite society. <laughs> you, know, you mentioned the things we're not allowed to talk about. Um, it's, and is, Would you say that's what unites your projects, this sense that the water that we swim in, that we can't even um, identify, to bring that to the surface and to put a finger on it and to make sense of it and work out how we could redesign it? That's a that's a pretty good analysis. I hadn't actually thought of it that way, but I think you're right. And I did have one really interesting conversation with um, so with Feral Trade. I'm working with a large group of people in Europe who are working to reinvent the ancient art of sailing cargo on wind-propelled ships um, in inland waters and across the Atlantic and around the European coast. Oh, wow. Very ambitious project, very exciting, that involves these, you know, 100-foot ships with 40-ton cargo holds crossing the Atlantic with um, cargoes of coffee and rum and such like things. And 
One of my friends from that movement um, in Bristol, a wine trader, Gisto Wines, and he trades in wine from Portugal. And he got really interested in the label that I was putting on the coffee packets. And the label um, is generated through the feral trade database and lays out all of the kind of financial inputs that go into every shipment, including currency transfers that I make and paying the freight agent and buying the stickers to put on the bags. And it itemizes all this stuff and adds it up per bag of coffee. Mm-hmm. And it's a fantastically useful accounting system for me so I can remember what I paid for the labels last time, that kind of thing. Um But also what it does is it shows the buyer the exact breakdown of what went to the farmer, what went to all of the other processes that got this item to them. And then, of course, they can see my markup because the difference between what it cost and what they paid is what goes to me. And he loved this as a concept and was really interested in putting it on his wine, which he sells mainly to restaurants in Bristol. And... He took it to a he took a kind of mock up to a few of his customers and they were absolutely horrified, these bars and restaurants. <laughs> because they were saying, like, but the consumer will be able to see what our markup is, because of course, you know, as we know, right? As everyone knows, the markup on wine in a restaurant is huge. Yeah. It's pretty much double what you pay for it in the bottle shop. But everyone knows that already. It's not like it's a great mystery. But having that on the table as a talking point for them was just an absolute taboo. <laughs> and so despite his great conceptual interest in this, he, he just couldn't do it because he, he was too scared of, of the risk to his business. So I think that's exactly it, to be able to make challenges and invite others to explore and investigate these spaces with me. It's certainly not about me proving something and moving on. It's It's bringing people in. And the Feral MBA is very much open. It's just what what can we learn together in these spaces? And all of the wisdom that came out of the pilots that I've run is being brought in by people from their own life experience and just creating the forum in which this wisdom can come to the surface and be shared is this process. And it's so, it's so different to these um, models for degrowth or donut economy or all these kind of um, activist progressive solutions that are designed around here's a solution, how do we flesh this out, rather than just how do we explore these really interesting and difficult spaces that we don't speak about much. So it's a very different inflection. It's fantastic. What a great example of the the wine label and what's possible and, yeah, all of the um, knowledge and expertise that we all carry, which is erased or overlooked through these systems that you mentioned. Um, it's been fantastic speaking to you, Kate. Thanks so much for your time. I wanted to ask one final question, which is uh, looking forward uh, to ask you what you're working on, what's next, um, what's the next stage of the project where are you going with all of this? So for what's next, um, I'm so the, the Feral MBA, I've run a couple of pilots and I'm really excited to take that project and program a lot further. So at the moment I'm doing a lot of thinking about what came out of it and writing that up. And when that's done, I'm really 
interested in embarking on a lot more runs of that program in different forms that from a kind of, you know, weekend intensive to an MBA scale um, durational cohort that could run over a year or so. So having established a format that's interesting, I would love to take that further. And I'm really interested in taking that into different contexts. So the first two pilots were partly from convenience, were run with artists, people with whom I have a fairly similar background. And I'm very interested in what that program would look like and can I hold that kind of space in a really different demographic, one of which I would be very interested in doing um, would be with teenagers and or young Mm. and very young adults who are really entering this. So so I've been, you know, I guess my two main interests with the program are people entering this space for the first time and again, it's it's not about my expertise at all. I don't really, I'm not closely in touch with what the urgent issues are for teenagers, but the whole point is establishing the environment and then people bring in their own questions. So that's one thing I would be very interested to do. And the other one is working with mature businesses who are really struggling to fit their, um, and this is everywhere, that have fantastic ideas and are trying to force that into the shapes that the mainstream business environment offers, including the really great but constrained shapes of um, so-called alternative business. So Mm. there's a a great sort of therapeutic element to to all of this, and um, I'm trained as a life coach, and I brought a lot of that training into the – into the feral MBA and I'm developing my own kind of strain of feral business coaching that does a lot of the things that business coaching does but removes the assumptions of a neoliberal destination um, in what success would look like in the need to be productive or efficient that really asks all of those questions as well. So to have an, to, to um uh, hold an environment for established businesses to come in and get that kind of therapy, because there's a lot. There's a lot of um, there's a huge lacks in business support. There's huge lacks in um, there's a lot of support around the kind of legal, technical, financial side, and very little support around the emotional side and the um, you know like the political side of what being a business is. So that's where I see the feral MBA going. And I would love to do that in Australia. Fantastic. Um, well, it's super exciting. We'll have to speak to Empathy and get you to um, host it here in Melbourne. I'm sure there'd be plenty of people here who'd love to take part. It's a um, super fascinating project. Thanks so much for your time. Lovely to chat with you. And hopefully we will see you soon. Uh, it's been, yes, thanks, um, thanks again. Thanks for ha- having us. Thanks, Rory. That was um, that was really fun. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast. Conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.